This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. Support for this podcast also comes from HomeBank, providing mobile app and account notification technology to help customers detect fraudulent activity because security is knowing. Find more tips to bank securely at home24bank.com. HomeBank, member FDIC. Today, we welcome Dr. Rachel Pruchno, author of Beyond Madness, a book which is part memoir, part history, and part empathetic guide. Dr. Pruchno draws on her decades as a mental health professional on our own family's experiences with mental illness and extensive interviews with people with serious mental illness, which has biological roots. Her book discusses how individuals live with these illnesses, including bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and major depression. This up-to-date book details how 11.2 million adults and 1.9 million children live with serious mental illness and how the families have a front row seat to the ravages of serious mental illness as they try to make their way in the world. In the United States, approximately half of all people with serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar, and depressive disorders, do not get treatment. And Dr. Pruchno, I wanna thank you for joining Discover Lafayette. While you don't live in Louisiana, I feel your message is an important one to share with people who may feel that they don't know what to do they don't know who to go to, and they don't know how to deal with family issues, mental health mm-hmm. issues. It's an issue that doesn't have geographic boundaries. Thank you for being here today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Jan. It's an honor to be here. And not only does mental illness not have geographic boundaries, it doesn't have gender boundaries and age boundaries and race boundaries and any kind of demographic boundaries we can think about it doesn't it's blind to all of them yeah so this is your second book if i understand Mm -hmm. it you've written extensively and your 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 whole career has been um i want to say mental health but in the book you distinguish between mental health and mental illness if you could talk about your background, if you're willing to share, and what led you to this point to want to help all of us that need help? Sure. I think it really is important to make the distinction between mental health, which is a really good thing, and mental illness, which is not a really good thing. Uh, I think that the the words are used interchangeably, um, and I don't really understand why. It doesn't make sense. We can't, we shouldn't be talking about schizophrenia as a mental health challenge. It, schizophrenia is a mental illness. It is an illness. Like diabetes is an, is an illness. You don't talk about diabetes as health. It's, it's an illness. Um, and, and I think it's really, I think, I think one of the reasons why we've made so little progress in terms of understanding these illnesses, uh, such as schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, um, we we kind of combine them and when we kind of combine them we have a big mush and 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 we combine people who have um the people that are the the the, um you know may have some anxiety may have some some um normal 
reactions to life events. We combine those worried well people who do need help and they do need treatment, but we combine them with the people who can't get out of bed. They can't function. They can't, they can't think they can't, you know? And so I, I think we run into real problems there. So, so in terms of my own career, um, kind of interesting. Uh, I say in the book that, that, um, I got my PhD at Penn State University where I studied um, lifespan development. And, and there I learned about mental health and I learned about interventions to make people healthier and happier and have better quality of life and, and, and all that kind of stuff, which is really important. And I've spent my career studying a lot of that stuff. But in terms of mental illness, what I've learned about mental illness, I've learned from my family. Mm -hmm. um, so my, star my story started um, when I was about 12. My mother, who was just one of the other mothers in the neighborhood in, in Detroit where I grew up, um, all of a sudden, like a light switch, um, started to have some serious problems. This Here we have this, this well-educated, she had a master's degree in economics, which for, for her time was, was yeah. amazing. Um, she, she was brilliant and she had you know lofty ideas and she used to read these books that I couldn't even you know tell you what the titles were, but they were smart people books. Um, all of a sudden, she crumbled. She couldn't get out of bed. She couldn't figure out what to make for dinner. She couldn't take me shopping. You know, she couldn't make a decision about anything. Um, that was mental illness. That's mental illness. And then, um, so 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 that began my journey. Um, and 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 again, we can come back and talk about it if you're you're interested. But but my family, just like all the other families in the 1970s, hid mental illness. Mm -hmm. Didn't talk about it. My my uncle, my my close my parents' closest friends didn't know anything about what was going on. The only people that really knew what was going on were my father and my brothers. And your we dad were, was an executive at Ford. Is that what? Right? I mean, you yeah. were in a upper middle class situation. I'm assuming. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. There were resources. Um, my mother spent many months each year at uh, in the psychiatric ward uh, in Detroit's uh, psychiatric hospital. Because that's what people did then. They would go away for three, four, five. I mean, I, most of December's and January's, she was not home. Seasonal, seasonal, yeah. very seasonal for her. Um, but that was her pattern. Not, not always seasonal. Um, and and so you know, my story continues. I became a psychologist probably because I was fascinated by what I was seeing. Um, spent years studying. I, I'm a gerontologist. I, I study older people. I study successful aging, um, and then my story continues because my adopted daughter uh, suffers, became very clear when she was about, I'm not sure when it became clear, but it became clear by the time she was 10 that something was not right with this child. Um, and uh, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So here we have the situation of, you know, these two people did not share any genes. What they shared was me. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I have seen and understood mental illness as a child, as a professional, and as a mother. Mm -hmm. The book is fascinating, um, Beyond Madness. And I've shared with you before we started taping something that I really, I've told some people, but not really mainstream, but I grew up like you did, although my mother was really always mentally ill. I mean, it wasn't when she was older. I grew up with that. And we'll talk about the stigma. There's a lot of shame and no one talked about it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but it, there was a lot of stigma. And I felt always that we were defective 
you know, she was the only one in the family, but I was the one that had to pick up the pieces as the middle child. My older brother helped and then he moved on as quickly as he could. And I guess I was like you, I was the one that ended up, you know, taking care of a lot of things. And uh, I didn't realize till I was older how much it affected my life. And so having this opportunity to interview you, I read it's almost 400 page book, but the things you touched on touched my heart. Um, how people don't always want to take their medication, but you said that sometimes because of psychotic episodes, the brain matter is destroyed and people aren't in denial. They don't even know they have problems. Like it, your book deeps, d deeply dives into how to get resources, how families live with this. And it's, it's a, it's, it really touched me. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that you've done the research you have, if I can share that with you. I, I, I mean, this has been a hard journey for me. And um, I, I hear I'm you and, and, and I really respect your willingness to talk. Um, you know, somebody who has a podcast has listeners and listeners trust people like you. And, and I think it's, it's very um, important for all of us to talk about it. Um, I, I am just amazed now even you know how few people will talk about it mm -hmm. um you know i can i can take my own situation and and tell you one story after the next about people who i thought i knew people that i've known 30 40 years and 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 i thought i knew and then even after i i, I did write my um memoir in 2014 and 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 um that's when i told my story that that book really started my talking it coming out of my heart to be honest uh -huh. it must have been hard oh it yeah. was it was especially because you know my family was a lot of a lot of secret keepers about my mother and then when my daughter got ill this, we're talking in you know that the 2000s 2010 2015 whatever um when you'd think that by that point i would know enough not to keep secrets we my husband and i did not tell anybody about what was going on with our daughter mm -hmm. um, including my brothers to whom I'm, I'm very close and oh by the way who were there with my mother too yeah yeah right i could not bring myself to tell them that she was jumping out of windows and that she was um going off to hotels with men but couldn't talk about it mm -hmm. um and so what happened was um when my daughter turned 18 she uh, left home with a person that a man that she had met in the psychiatric ward mm. and left left my life um and and at that point as lucy used to say you got some splaining to do so so how do you she? yeah we're so, yeah. i mean it was it's like you know back to the wall gotta say something um and so i then and i thought well you know i got a lot of people to to do a lot of explaining to do and i started thinking and writing and and i i started just writing and and it was like maybe i'll just write this and, and give it to people to read and the more i wrote of course the, the it, it this thing that was a big diary um, turned into a first draft of of what became my memoir because it really told my story and, and and as I was writing and thinking this through, I realized that you know what, if I can't tell my story, it, how can I ask other people to tell their story? And then how can we make any progress? You know that eleven million um, figure that that yeah. is in the book that you cited. That seems you know, like that, a low number to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a guess. My guess is it it could be ten times that because there are so many, you can't count all the people that are hiding. 
and most of the people are hiding. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't know, you know, where that you know, maybe that's diagnosed, but but yeah. there are so many people. There, there are a lot of people that don't get diagnosed and then there are a lot of people that are hiding and there are a lot of there are a lot of sick people that are being hidden by their families so you know take that 11 million and and do what you want with it but right the important thing the important thing i believe after all the work that i've done you know the, the research and the the, the 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 talks that i've done i believe that it's the odd family that doesn't have some mental illness lurking in it and if people say no 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 not not me my guess is it's there and you just don't know it. Mm -hmm. It is so prevalent. You know, if not a, if not a, a child, a nephew, a niece, a neighbor, a, a this or that, a cousin, th th there are, we, we've buried these problems for way too long and we need to unbury them by being brave, by doing what you're doing and, and, and talking to people like me and, you know, getting conversations going to say, hey, look, I'm not a bad person. Um, you're not a bad person. Yeah, we both did lose our childhoods in, in so many ways. I mean, it comes out with me all the time. You know, my, my husband's convinced that I never listened to music when I was a kid. And, and, and I think I didn't. You know, I missed, I missed like everybody. Um, and, and I think that was because I was really worried about, is my mother going to kill herself today? Yeah. And you know, you know, it's interesting. My mother never tried to hurt herself or others. It's, it's you know, I guess mental illness is as unique as the individual, as you say. Mm -hmm. But she would go through those periodic, you know, the seasonal illnesses you spoke about. She would either be in bed, agoraphobic, wouldn't go out, mm -hmm. or, you know, some normalcy and then manic. And it would be like just a cycle. But we never had the suicide and other things you spoke about. But it's still a loss. Like the family, yeah. I didn't want people in my home. I, we didn't talk right. about it. And I think about, I guess, the empathy that I'm, I'm sure you have as I have for children that are trapped in homes with issues, whether it's mental illness or other things that are beyond their control. When you lose your childhood, it makes adulthood very difficult. And your book is just full of insight about the different mental illnesses. And also you give us insight about how we can help ourselves and others. And I had some questions I wanted to ask you. I didn't mean for this to be about me, but your, your story really touched me and I, I was hopeful I could stay up for this interview because it it brought back a lot of memories that I you tend to bury things. Mm -hmm. It's easier to bury it sometimes than to face it, you know. Mm -hmm. You talk mm -hmm. about how to recognize early signs of serious mental illness. And your your daughter, your adoptive daughter, started showing signs early, I think in the book you said by eight. And but your mother was 43 before she had signs of mental illness. So what what do we look for? So again, loaded question, and and these illnesses um, present in so many different ways at so many different times in a, in a person's life. I mean, there are there are case studies of people buying, being diagnosed with mental illness in 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 the womb. I mean, there's all sorts of wow. stories. Yeah, right. And and similarly, there are many cases of late onset, late onset um, depression, late onset bipolar disorder. So it really varies. Um, remember, you know, I think it really helps to remember that these are brain diseases, disorders, and, and things can go wrong at almost any point in time, which is why I think it's so important that we channel resources to mental illnesses because it can affect any and all of us at any point in time. I don't think any of us are, are you know, protected. Um, in terms of, you know, warning signs, and when I think about my daughter, 
Um, yeah, so she was my first child. I'm a gerontologist. What did I know about children? Absolutely nothing. So um, I didn't know whether she was just you know somewhere on the somewhere somewhere on some continuum that you know she was just a little strange or was it pathological i didn't know and i don't think we're to a point where we can know um, i do know that my sister-in-law who's a pediatric geneticist um told me long after the fact that she saw some strange behaviors when my daughter was three and a half four years old like what um like she, my, my daughter took uh one of her cousin's favorite toys and threw it in the pool threw it threw it away i mean just hurtful harmful right just why, why would you do such a thing why would a child do such a, just mean um but but you know i think you know what if kind of we're going towards you know when should people worry and, and what should people you know is is there a trigger is there, is there a time that is there some behavior that would lead a parent to to seek help um I, I think not i think i think there's not one easy answer i think probably the best advice i can suggest is is you know if there's a major change you know so if you've got a child who's happy-go-lucky and getting good grades in school and then you get good reports from the teacher and then all of a sudden boom not um yeah pay attention because it might just be something transient but it might not be mm -hmm. and it's so important if it really is the beginning of a mental illness that it be addressed and treated as mm -hmm. early as possible because that treatment that early intervention predicts success long term i read i read that in the book and it's you know you don't want to be jumping in looking for psychiatric help if you don't need it but yeah you know if you can share advice on finding good medical care and knowing what to ask because if you're seeing things like i was thinking about the throwing something in the pool i mean i guess we've all seen kids just doing knucklehead things so you don't mm -hmm. always think my child has a problem but i know with your daughter you were saying as she went on in school she started acting out and you know had some issues was unorganized and struggled with her uh classwork and and all mm -hmm. that and i know we've all seen behaviors like that but how do you go about finding good medical care and, and what do you ask like do you go to your gp how do you start this process yeah and and again i, I wish that i had an easy answer and i could say oh presto change this is exactly mm -hmm. what you do uh, i can tell you what i did um when 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 there were behaviors that i was concerned about i went to the pediatrician that was that was my first stop um i think it's a reasonable first stop because I think in many respects, the, the pediatrician is a gatekeeper for children. Um, they I ideally should be well connected in the community. And sometimes that, that happens and sometimes it doesn't. Um, that's probably not a bad place to start. You know, it's, it's a good place to say, you know, my child is doing X, Y and Z. Should I be worried? Um, and, and actually, when I did go to the pediatrician, um, the initial behaviors that I was concerned with were the disorganization. She can't sit still in school. Um, and those behaviors very nicely led the pediatrician to conclude, oh, she must have ADHD. So we'll give her some medication for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a reasonable guess. And it seemed to work for a while. And then my daughter continued to age and um, the medications became less effective and we started seeing new behaviors and, and another one popped up and another one popped up. And so then we we got to the point where 
um, the pediatrician said, you know, I think she should see a psychiatrist. She needs something more than me, which is great. You know, I, I think that pediatricians, you know, they, again, they have a lot of general knowledge, but not real specific knowledge about psychiatric illnesses with children. So, so a pediatrician who suspects something, the smartest thing they can do is to refer you on, mm-hmm. which was what happened in, in our case. Um, Did I read that you mentioned Psychology Today has a website? They do. They do. And it's for mental health professionals in, in their area. Yeah. And it's, it's a nice place. It's a nice place to start. I don't think it's the only place. So psychology today has a, a website where you can um, put your geography in. you can, you can um, put, you know, if you have a diagnosis you, and you're looking for a, a psychiatrist to treat perhaps an, a, an adolescent with depression, you can put in adolescent and depression and your geography and the, the website will give you the names of, of potential doctors. Okay. That, that's not a bad idea. Of course, then what you have to do is you have to call the offices and you have to confirm that they're A, taking new patients and B, taking new patients and C, taking new patients because many of them are not. Because they're overloaded? Totally overloaded. Very, very difficult. The, many psychiatrists have been retiring in the past decade and they have not been replaced and they're not going to be replaced. Why? I don't know. But um, they're not, which, of course, makes it the, the journey more difficult. Um, so, so yeah, taking new patients is important. But um, in addition to taking, so, so my recommendation would be, you know, get on. The, the other place that I would start is, is um, talking to everybody you know. And this is why secrecy is bad. Um, talk to your, your next door neighbor and talk to the pharmacist and talk to... Um, the, the medical student that you know down the street and talk to anybody that you know and talk to your dentist because you know what all these people are connected to each other somehow mm-hmm. you know if if you had a child who was doing x what would you do and keep track of what they say and you know there's a lot of a lot of sort of networking i think is really important mm-hmm. to, to 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 help get to it because it's very hard to find um the right professional mm-hmm. and then in my experience um I, I I did all this, and and you know just to give you a, an idea of how hard it is. When when my daughter um, started having problems, I I was here in this medical school where I still am today. You'd think, oh, she's in a medical school. Maybe she should have some context. Maybe somebody in this medical school should know something about where what to do with a troubled adolescent. And n- they didn't because I did I did some networking. Nobody nobody could give me a referral. So so you you do That's your best. This is a, <laughs> you should uh-huh. have, you should have had access to all kinds of names huh? where you are in your field right so so yeah i mean um so so it's really important to to do all this networking search broadly you're you're fishing you're really looking for the right person you know then you make your calls and you you talk to the receptionist who um will probably tell you the doctor's not taking new patients for at least six months Mm -hmm. Um, and then what you say is i'd like to make an appointment for the earliest opening so you 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 know if you if you're lucky and and you, you Get get ten of these appointments, right? And then if when they call you, if you've already found somebody, great. And if not, mm-hmm. that might be you know they, they may open it up in in two months or three months. Um, but then once you get there, <clears throat> my experience was got there, and uh, I I had been through twenty people, and and then narrowed it down and waited for three months. Get there, and I'm all excited. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna do good stuff. And my daughter goes in to talk to this person. And she comes out, we get back in the car, she closes the door and she says, I'm never going back there. He was creepy. Oh, God. 
Oh, no, of course, we're never going back there because nothing's gonna, nothing good's going to happen. And you couldn't go in the room with her? Is it like a privacy? Um, he didn't do anything creepy. She just didn't like him. Mm -hmm. And you just, really wanted to be there in the room just to see, but I guess they want it to be. No, just it's better if you're not. It's better. It, it, I mean, my daughter was, I don't know, 12, 13, and it was fine. I, I, I was not worried about her safety. Um, but the, the point is not that he was creepy or did anything wrong. The point is she did not connect with him. Yeah. Could have been a woman. And, and there were other women too that, that she just, I don't like her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how, it's hard. How do you respond? I guess let's assume I've got two thoughts there, Rachel. I'm curious why there aren't a lot of psychiatrists, um, especially if medication is needed, you need it an MD. Is it just too hard of a field to go into? I mean, is it just too taxing for MDs to pursue? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and then there are not only are there psychiatrists, but there are people who there, there is a specialty. There's an adolescent psychiatry specialty. And I have often told people that if I were starting my career again, that's exactly where I would go because these illnesses um, while they can happen at any point in the life course, they're more likely to happen in adolescence in the early 20s. Mm -hmm. And and that's where I that's where we need professionals. Um, why is there a shortage? There's a shortage. It has to do with licensing and training and, you know, it's sort of all the way down the pipeline in terms of we're just not planning for the next generation. Why are we not planning for the next generation? Because we have no idea how many people are sick. Right. And there's such a stigma, like you said, it's secret right. in many cases how do you respond when a loved one a family member i guess you, or even a close friend um is in crisis like if you it comes to your attention we have a problem how, how do you respond without turning them off you know or running them away yeah you know i think I think listening is a good idea. I think asking if there's anything I can do for you, you know, can I, a friend, can I um, take the other kids to their piano lessons or can I help with something? Can I bring you dinner? Um, I think just being there is is good. And, and you know, uh, often I have these, these sort of fantasies of, well, what would it have been like if I'd been able to tell my friends what I was going through? I'm sure they would have been there because, you know what, I'm a psychologist and I got some psychologist friends, right? And they would have understood, but I couldn't bring myself to, let them know to be open to say, you know, this is going on and, you know, just to have somebody to talk to. And, and I think so. So it's so just being a listening person, mm -hmm. um, I, I think, is important. So we're talking about the stigma of mental illness. And I, I read in your book, which I thought was really honestly the truth. It's not just the stigma, but it's the ripple effect of mm -hmm. the stigma and the shame and all the things that go into having somebody in your family with mental illness or being that person that suffers. Um, mm -hmm. I guess talking about it is how we minimize the stigma. I mean, you had said mm -hmm. in the book that there were surveys done in the 50s and 60s about stigma, but then I think it was George H.W. Bush that talked about studying the brain during his administration. He wanted to focus on the brain. And it actually raised mm -hmm. stigma. Like, you know, it yeah. had the rebound, it had the wrong effect. Uh -huh. Trying to help people. He was trying to help. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, people tend to fear things they don't know. The unknown is scary. So if if we can have people coming out and 
talking about the problem uh, or the experience, then it's less scary. You know, and I think, you know, as I was writing the book, one of the things that really struck me was what we could learn from the LGBT population. Mm-hmm. You know, for years they hid and they were stigmatized. And then once they decided, okay, enough, we're not going to hide anymore. And they all kind of came out of the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, we all got to know them as people. Once you get to know somebody as a person, they're no longer a schizophrenic or a depressed person or whatever. They're a human being first. Mm-hmm. Um, and that changes. That's a, that's a game changer. I know. I'm thinking I've had some friends that were honest with me just saying they were on medication for mm-hmm. bipolar disorder or something. And I thought, well, golly, I love them. And they're, they're highly, yeah. highly functioning, highly creative people. Mm-hmm. And you also talk in the book about with kids, with the youngest generation, maybe not the little ones, but so many kids are on medication. You wonder if it's all needed, but they talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, this next generation coming up. So I wonder yeah. if the stigma will be lessened by the number of yeah, people that, talk. That really does give me hope. Um, I you're just sort of watching my daughter uh, sort of negotiate the world with her friends. Uh-huh. Um, I remember being in line to drop her off at camp, a sleepaway camp, and the first place you had to go with all your medication is with take all your medications in a plastic bag, and you go to see the nurse. And I thought, oh, okay, we're gonna be the only ones there. <laughs> No. Oh no! Oh no! Long, long, long lines, and the kids are like, "Oh, you're on that." Oh, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's great. I think it's great that they're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think again that that makes it more normal, more acceptable. Uh, my oh, my friend, my friend's taking that antidepressant. Okay, well then I'm not, I, I don't feel so weird, right? Right. Yeah. All these things cost money. Um, I mean, what can families do to? plan or provide in the event there is a long, lifelong financial support obligation to help? Yeah. I mean, I there I think um, getting a financial planner involved is really important because you as a, as a parent, for example, are, are planning not only for your own lifespan and you want to have enough money to make sure that you don't outlive your funds, but you're now also planning for a child who may not be able to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, that it's really important to make a plan to not assume that a sibling is going to take over because more often than not, this, you know, one of your other children may want to help, mm-hmm. but um, they just have too many other obligations in their own life. And then what happens to the person with illness, the person with schizophrenia or bipolar, who really is going to need somebody to, to help them and, and right. financially have somebody be there. So, so I think that finding a good financial planner that will listen um, for what your situation is and, and, and help you to, to do the best planning that you can for it. You know, that that includes the needs of that person. I'm going to share information about your book, Beyond Madness. We'll share. um, I know people can get it on Amazon and all the places you buy books. I'm assuming it really gave you a lot of comfort to to go through what you did to write and research. It's it's so well done. It's so well written. Thank you. What was your main was there like a main point you wanted to make in this interview today? You know, trying to get the word out about your message. Yeah. So, so, uh, and thank you, Jen. I mean, your questions have been wonderful. Yeah. I think the premise of this book is that while there's a lot we don't know about these serious mental illnesses, there's a lot we do know. 
And sadly, the information that we do have, the limited information we have, is not getting to the people who need it the most. Those people are the families, the teachers who recognize there's something not right with the kid, um, but, um, the, the police who are not trained to be mental health professionals, mental, they're not trained, um, the clergy. When you're in crisis, many people will turn to a clergy person. Well, that's great, but they have no idea what these illnesses are. So, so this book is, is sort of my labor of love um, and, and legacy in terms of um, these, are the, these are the problems and, and there are solutions in this book. It's not just, and you know, I explain how we got where we got, but, but the, you know, the main message is I want people to learn from my own frustrations and struggles. You know, so I did the hard lifting of reading the literature and getting into the journals and, and making sense because sometimes this article says this and that article says that. And so I have made sense of each of these really tough issues and then distilled it in a, in a um, way that lay people, this book is written for lay people. So I, I just want to be, you know, make that very clear. Um, it's, it's written for, for the people who need it. It's written from your heart. And um, I think the one, one part that just stood out with me was when you talked about your mom's death, which was unfortunate to suicide. Um, my mother died of complications from a, diabetes, kidney failure, and heart congestive heart failure. But I felt this relief. I was with her actually the moment she died. Um, I was in the hospital. I'd moved her here to Lafayette, and I was with her. And I felt this strange feeling of peace. Mm -hmm. She was free of her struggle, and I was also released from that obligation. I mean, I was a yeah. curator. And you yeah. wrote in your book that you felt this feeling of relief. Mm -hmm. and I don't know if people can understand that, but it's it's a loving relief is what mm -hmm. I read. That's how I felt. Yeah, I think so. And, I and, know. and yeah, it's 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 okay. She's no longer suffering mm -hmm. and I'm no longer suffering. And I no longer have to worry about is this going to be the day that, or the week or whatever that she's going to kill herself? Because there is a lot of anxiety. When, when somebody is um, as depressed as my mother was, mm -hmm. um, there were many attempts. There were many, many attempts. And there were so many attempts that I didn't even know because I had got out. Many of them happened after I went off to college. And, and the hiding and the secrecy that, that my family had done, done very well, once I was no longer in that house, I was an outside, I was an other. Um, so I would just, you know, I'd come home whenever I could. I went to school not far from home, but, um, you know, it was two hours away. And so, you know, that gave me the distance. You know, going off to college for me was was huge. I mean, it was yeah. like, oh, this is what normal is all about. Mm -hmm. But yet I was still tethered to home and to her and to, to worrying about what was going on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 if someone hasn't, lived it, it may be hard to understand the sense of, of relief of, of, okay, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I pictured my mom in a field, young and healthy and just, mm -hmm. you know, and, and yeah, not suffering, not suffering, not suffering. And it gave me comfort. But when I read your words, I just want others that may want to read this book to know that there's, there are gems of knowledge and experience in this book that can bring comfort to so many people. I want to thank you. Thank you, Dan. Show for writing Beyond Madness. And again, I'll, I'll put this on my website uh, as to where people can go, but you can just Google Beyond Madness and it'll come up and 
I really recommend that people buy your book, uh, go to the library, check it out wherever they want to get it. But it's, it's definitely worth reading. Thank you for sharing yourself with us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And before we end, I'd like to thank our listeners for being so loyal. And also I'd like to thank our sponsors who make the show possible. Home Bank, thank you so much for your loyal support. And of course, Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape. Thank you for making this possible. Please go to discoverlafayette.net to see Dr. Puchno's interview along with 270 others. Or if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe to Discover Lafayette wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for joining us. 